So it comes to mind, you know, this is the last chapter of Genesis. We're, we're closing out uh, this book. This book and uh, what we've read so far actually covers the largest portion of history from creation to Jesus. At this point, uh, there's only right around 1,600 years from the close of this book until Jesus comes. So if you take that first 4,000 years of history, the book of Genesis covers a, a really massive chunk of history. What's most remarkable about the book is its accuracy. You know, uh, more and more, uh, even you know, non-religious historians are admitting and recognizing that the accuracy of this historic record cannot be denied. You know, they have their problems along the way. They don't like, you know, Noah's flood. They, you know, want to argue with certain points, but the history stands. You know, I, I would, you know, encourage anyone that has that type of struggle to, you know, look at uh, the flood and, um, you know, other records, the longevity of, you know, uh, Adam and Eve and their children living, you know, almost a thousand years. You know, wh when you find the accuracy of the civilizations and the people and, you know, the, the records of humanity and all that has gone on, it might cause you to think that perhaps the other portions that you know we struggle with are equally legitimate so you know when you come to uh, genesis chapter 50 we just read in chapter 49 how jacob who has become known as israel passes away and he you know is mourned by his children and that's that's where we are as we turn the page into Verse 1 of chapter 50, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. I think that perhaps a big portion of his mourning, because you know they're holding to the promises that God has given them uh, for the land, for their current situations, uh, for what the Lord is going to do in them as a nation and for their eternal future. So so it isn't as though, you know, like we're told in the New Testament, you know, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. So the mourning that I see here, I think, you know, part of it is all that particularly Joseph has gone through in being betrayed and separated from his family for so long, and now that loss again. You know, any of us that have been through great loss know, you know that once you've been through that you know, personal, one-on-one, -on -one, firsthand, tremendous loss, the next time it happens, it's almost a lot more painful. And I think that perhaps that's some of what's going on the loneliness, the separation that he had experienced for all those years. You know, we see uh, these chapters relaying uh, Joseph's 
conduct through those circumstances very upright. You know, he's sustained by the Lord very well. But there's, there's a hurt. There's an injury. There's a scar there. And now with the loss of his father, this great morning, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed him. We're going to see in verse 3 and following, this is a very long process and it's extremely expensive and it's reserved for those of nobility. So Joseph's father has by proxy been given that elevated status. Joseph is the savior of the world, having prepared for the famine and stored up the grain. And the Pharaoh has just honored him with the high, he's number two in command in all of Egypt. And now his father has passed away. In all of these cultures, no matter how elevated a man is, his father is elevated above him. There's that ancient world, the biblical precept of honoring your father and mother. And that, that's woven into this, that Joseph, and even you know the, the uh, Pharaoh recognizes that necessity. That if you know, Joseph is thought of as a prince, then his father is above him. He has that status of royalty. So there in verse 3, 40 days were required for him. For such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Okay, now that, both those things, beginning with the embalming, you know, lengthy process, you know, some of the bodies that were embalmed are still intact today. You know, that's amazing to consider. That you're, you're talking about something that was 1,600 years before Christ, now the nearly 2,000 years that have transpired since then, and bodies, you know, nearly perfectly intact. You know, this is not something that was done for any ordinary citizen. Add to that, this is the traditional mourning period that would take place for the Egyptians when their pharaoh passed away, or anyone of near equal status. So, so the nation, you know, the Egyptians mourn for him 70 days. There's a great attachment to this family. The, the ungodly, you know, unbelieving, idol-worshipping Egyptians have a, a great affinity for God's family here in this moment, in this point in history. Verse 4, Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself, in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. A few things to examine there. The first of which is, Joseph has been put politically 
in the place, as we've already mentioned, of being the second in command of all of Egypt. And yet, in this moment, he goes to the household of Pharaoh and makes the request through them. Think, think about that for a moment. He really has no need to do this. He's second in command. He could just ask audience and walk directly in and speak to Pharaoh. He respects the relationship of the family and says, through them, if it's all right with you, may I have permission to go do this. He does not come in with any kind. He doesn't come in with what I see a lot of Christians having today, that attitude like, I'm a child of God and you're this meager heathen, so let me just declare to you the way it should be. Instead, there's a respect for an ordinance that God puts in place and the cultural norm. I'm not going to bypass any of this. I'm going to show the reverence that I'm supposed to have for these people. And he really is subjecting himself to the place where if they were to decline, he would be obedient to it. You know the Lord would have opened up an opportunity otherwise, but his whole request is put forward in such a way that submission is seen very plainly in it. And then even the assurance of future submission. I'm not going to stay in my homeland. I will come back. You have the promise that I will come back. And then he even puts a deposit and a surety upon that return. We'll see in just a moment. I, I love this level of reverence for God. This is, this is not, you know, what Proverbs tells us. The fear of man is a snare. That, that's not what we're looking at here. This is a reverence for God that Joseph is demonstrating. Can I ask you to put your bookmark there at verse 5 and just turn with me for a moment over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> We're going to begin right at verse 1. Think about how unthinkably wicked the Roman Empire was. If there was ever a world government that you would tell people, rebel against them, <laughs> it was definitely Rome. They were psychopathic. It was really difficult to consider. Right? The Jews had great struggles. Right? Should we pay taxes? You know, they're arguing. Look at what Paul tells the church in Rome, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Well, howdy doody. But what about the electoral college? Hmm. What about the popular vote? Apparently, both of those are in subjection to God. Or we can just shred the book, right? 
because it's either right or it's not. You say, well, not during the last administration. Yes, during the last administration. And this one too, can you believe it? God is in control. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. If you're not aware of it, when you're driving around town and you see that bumper sticker that just says resist, that's literally what it's talking about. Those people are saying resist this government. Whoever resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. <laughs> Having been on the other side in opposition to the law in my younger years, as I surrendered to the Lord, I had friends who watched that happen. And they'd be like, yeah, but the cops. <laughs> and I'd have to inform them, yeah, a lot of them are my friends now. They were like, what? And I looked like a hooligan. Maybe I still do. But anyway, I was pulled over many times because of profiling. Long hair, leather jacket. Four others just like me in the car with me. You know, when there are three police officers approaching your car and the one nearest your window has his hand on his gun while he's talking. I'm not exaggerating. You know, window down. And I say, good evening, sir. There's a perplexed look on his face. Good evening, sir. You know, license and registration, everything's in order, and we begin the conversation. I like to name drop, usually helps me. I say, do you know Officer White? And there's a startled look. How do you know Officer White? We go to church together. You do? Yeah, the four of us just left church. Wow, that traffic stop turns into like 30 seconds. And they just hand you the thing and say, have a good evening. Because when you're involved in good works, there's nothing to fear. I don't have any fear. I remember the days where simply seeing a cruiser caused me to like need medication. Panic attack, man. Just full on. Gone are those days. Not so much because I'm submitted to them, but because I'm submitted to Christ. I'm submitted to Christ. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you. Have you thought of him that way? For good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword or the badge or the gun in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. 
Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. What conscience sake? Conscience towards God. That's the whole of what he's saying. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. I had a, I was going to say argument, I'll just call it discussion, with a man who was upset about tithing. And he's trying to say, right, right, but the scripture, all of those cases are talking about, you know, when they gave their tithes, that supported the political system and the religious system simultaneously. So now I pay taxes, so therefore I don't pay tithes. Like, wow, you're really confused. Because Jesus told the people of his day to both pay taxes to Rome and also to give their tithes and offerings. The authorities that God puts in place. We should support them without any hesitation. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Fear to God, honor to God, his authority, even within those realms where we're paying the taxes. Back in Genesis chapter 50, looking at verse 6, and Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Total, total agreement with Joseph. There's no hesitation. Why? Because Joseph's been faithful. His family is not a family that the Pharaoh thinks he's going to have any difficulty from. These people are going to leave and they're never going to come back and serve me, and I'm not going to know what to do with all of the financial circumstances within my environment. There's a trustworthiness to Joseph and his family. You guys think about what a contrast that is to who these men used to be. These guys were pirates, right? Let's just kill our brother. He annoys us. Well... That might bring God's wrath upon us. I know. We'll throw him in a pit. And then he'll just starve to death. And then we won't have killed him. He will have just died of natural causes. Better yet, let's make some money on the deal. And they sell him off. And deceive and lie and conjole. What a crew. Now they've come to a place where when they ask the Pharaoh for permission, there's such trust that the Pharaoh without hesitation agrees. That's a big change. That's what we call repentance. 50 verse 7, So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph and his brothers, in his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. That's the deposit I'm talking about. You don't leave your herds and flocks and children behind if you're not intending to come back, which 
also shows, okay, hear me in this. The Egyptians are not trustworthy people. Their government is not a trustworthy government, even at this point. Yet we see this family entrusting all of their generations to them. We're going to leave town, travel all the way back to Canaan, and we're going to leave our children and our livestock here in the midst of these pagans. Why do they do that? Because the Israelites trust the Egyptians also. Why would they do that? Because they can trust them. The Israelites have very positively affected the Egyptians. There's a change of character even in the nation that they dwell amongst. Are you hearing me? Everybody wants to protest. Everybody wants to argue. Everybody wants to be combative. The thing that changed these people was Joseph's love. God's love. Working in Joseph. Working in his brothers. The grace, the forgiveness extended to them that permeated the family. That caused them to live amongst the Egyptians. You know this story got around. Eventually it was coming out. Wait a minute. Joseph was a prisoner. He's, he's the prime minister. How could he possibly have been felonious at some point in his life? Potiphar's wife, how did he come to work in Potiphar's house? Sold by his brothers. What a bunch of creeps. Yet look at them. They love one another. Why do they love one another? And the questions and the comments and probably the Bible studies that follow. And lives are changed. And requests are made and mutual trust is extended. There's a lot behind the scene here. Leave town, leave your little ones, leave your herds. It would have been very easy for the Egyptians to amass the army right on the border and say, all oh, you guys just go back to your homeland. We're going to keep your little ones and your flocks, your herds. We've had enough of you. Thank you very much for the provision during the famine. Right? You go, oh, that's just adding into it too much. It's not a few years from now when we see that type of behavior from the Egyptians, don't we? That's within their character. This family has affected this nation in a very, very positive way. They went up with both chariots and horsemen, it was a very great gathering. This is a massive entourage that has come to mourn and bury Israel. Verse 10, then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizram, which is beyond the Jordan. Abel Mizram means meadow of the Egyptians, but a wordplay suggests mourning of the Egyptians. You, you might, uh, you know, uh, like think of it, it doesn't really play well in English, so it's difficult to do, but the idea of like the dawning on a meadow 
being mourning, you know, equal to mourning of sorrow. So this this whole thing, this scene is sort of relayed in the, uh, you know, original language. The, the mourning of the Egyptians is what's meant there. 50 verse 12. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah. Before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, we've read this previously, the Hittite as property for a burial place. Something to think about, you guys, <laughs> is the only territory Abraham and his family own in Canaan is their gravesite. How interesting is that? Just their death, right? What are we called to as Christians? Death. Truly, take up your cross daily and follow me. Our existence in this world should be all about dying. Dying to ourselves and dying literally. Dying literally. Let the world watch us fade away with our eyes fixed firmly upon the promises of God. That's, that's where these guys are. They, they don't have the heavy thought and the heavy heart for the things of this world, even the, the properties that God has promised them. They're not focused on that. It's going to come to them as a nation, as a people, and they possess it now to this day. But their hearts are fixed upon their eternal resting place in the presence of God. They own only their graves. Verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. You might want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. We are told, read it many times, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has christ with the devil or what part has a believer with an unbeliever and what agreement has the temple of god with idols for you are the temple of the living god as god has said i will dwell in them and walk among them i will be their god and they shall be my people therefore Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That same concept. They're focused on Canaan. We've got to take Dad back and bury him in the cave because that's our home, not Egypt. So as much as they don't own anything in Canaan, they're certainly not setting down these patriarchs are certainly not setting down their roots in egypt the permanency of their future is in what god has promised them and in what his plan is for them take it to heart don't attach yourself to this world it'll be so disappointing the more we look to this world for any level of fulfillment the more it's going to break our heart the more destructive and disappointing it will be for every one of us. Now, in verse 15 of Genesis 50, it says, When Joseph's brothers 
saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph because he's part of the Egyptian government. They dwell in Goshen, so they don't have that day-to-day connection with him. So they send these messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, now pause at verse 17. It's quite possible that their father did not actually say this. Okay, It's definitely what is in their heart. And in the moment, dad has passed from the scene, so it sounds better coming out of dad's mouth. So assign it to dad. Whether it happened literally or not, we're not sure. But dad bears the authority. And this, and they're right. This certainly would be dad's wishes. So let's let dad speak from the grave. Whether he literally said it or not, that's the approach they're ta- taking. Verse 17. Thus you will say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sins. Listen. Whether dad said it or not, they're saying it right now. Please forgive us. Please forgive us. For they did evil to you. Open confession. Now please forgive the trespasses of of the servants of the God of your father. Invoking God's authority in this. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He was broken-hearted. Broken-hearted. You don't have to speculate far to realize why. This isn't his character. Dad's gone. Now I'll just annihilate my brothers. That's not his heart. Not even remotely. Along with that, Joseph is recognizing these men, my dearest brothers, have been carrying this burden all these years. They've been ensnared by their sin. As much as God has healed our family and brought us and put us back together, these men have not been living in the same peace I'm living in. As exemplary as Joseph is, he needs God's grace and forgiveness also, right? He's he's walking and functioning and living in God's grace and forgiveness every single day. And he knows that. that We don't see any record of that, but his behavior relays that to us. If he was an embittered man, he would have taken vengeance long ago. He would have had these men on the ropes all the time he could. That's not how he functions. There's a statement in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 that says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Listen, please, dear saints, hear me in this. If you are struggling with fear, weakness, bitterness, hatred, confusion, okay, do you see that? If I flip this verse over, Examine the verse with me, right? God's Spirit doesn't give you fear. Are you suffering with fear? But of power, opposite weakness. Are you are you functioning in weakness and of love? Opposite, hatred, bitterness, 
and a sound mind. Opposite. Confusion. Disturbed mind. Right? If you have those things in your life, then understand the spirit that is giving that to you is not God. At best, it's your own spirit. It's your flesh. It's your human spirit. Experiencing life, drawing on the past and what you're currently going through, and generating that on its own. Or at worst, it's that demonic minion that's been assigned to you. That's just constantly whispering. Oh, and they do that. That's not my own speculation, right? We read that Satan had put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. He can't read your mind, right? But if he whispers in your ear, do this, and then you do it, he knows he's affecting you. Behave in a fearful manner, and then you do? Huh. He knows he's got his hands right on the controls. What happens when you turn the opposite direction, right? Isn't it, isn't it fun to try to back up with mirrors? You know what I'm saying? If you're not really used to it, you're like, no, 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 no. Your body's telling you one thing. Everything that's coming into your eyes is telling you one thing. And no, you're going to actually do the exact opposite. Ah, the Christian life. I'm not just using it as an illustration. I'm stealing that from the scripture. Paul said, right now we see dimly as in a mirror. That's how you're walking through life, backwards. Hmm, okay. So right now, my natural tendency would be to react in fear. So I have to steer the opposite direction. It gets that mechanical, doesn't it? Right? My boss just said something that should make me make him disappear. <laughs> and instead, compliance with joy on your face in a helpful manner, and maybe even a coffee exactly the way they like it a little later. Exactly the opposite of what you wanted to do. I'm not talking like a coffee that you threw on it. You know. Brought you a coffee? It came out of the Dunkin' Donuts window three seconds ago. You're going to need a skin graft. You know, I don't. The opposite. If you, if you find yourself fearful, powerless, without love, confused, Oh, pray for His Spirit. Pray for His Holy Spirit to come to you and minister to you, right? Do you understand what the Scripture is saying in Hebrews about how the angels minister to us? I suspect they get the opportunity to whisper in our ear also. You know, it's not like one on the other on his shoulder and just, you know, what influence are you listening to? 
I don't I don't need the demonic. I'm I mean it. I I'm I'm perfectly evil all on my own. Perfectly evil. <laughs> I need the Holy Spirit. I really do. That guilt they're dealing with, this whole out of whack picture they've got of oh Joseph, please don't take it out. He's so powerful, they can't even go and address him directly. they got to send messengers through. He can come down on them hard right now. They're asking for grace and forgiveness. Their guilt, their guilt has been a burden to them. Right? Are there some of you sitting here today where you know exactly what I'm talking about? That burden of guilt. Christ, his forgiveness. 1 John 1 9, we know it, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So many of us know it here, but right here, it doesn't even touch. We function, we function day to day as though we're unforgiven. Oh, listen, if you're doing that, th think about this. Let me give you this illustration. We just took communion this morning, right? I mean, the, the bread and the cup, symbol of his body, symbol of his blood. Would you ever, receiving it, fling it on the floor? That has removed our guilt. We would never disgrace such a simple symbol of it and yet when it comes to the literal acceptance of his grace and his forgiveness we don't accept it let him cleanse you stop trying to paste the guilt back onto yourself if you've confessed it let it go let christ forgive you 50 verse 18 then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. So now they're given entrance, and they prostrate themselves and ask for forgiveness outright. There's something important about that. When you've wronged somebody, to go and face-to-face, -face, admit the wrong, and ask for forgiveness. If you can see they've forgiven you, and your relationship has been somewhat mended, Great, praise God. But there's something about clearing the air and just admitting, I wronged you. I was sinful. Will you please forgive me? There's a great healing that occurs in their heart and in your heart. Awkward as it is, it's much needed. 50 verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for Am I in the place of God? Could I, I'm going to carry out judgment upon you? I can't do that. That's not my role. But as for you, now notice this, right? I watch a lot of Christians do this. Oh, no, no, it wasn't a sin. Oh, no, no, you didn't wrong me. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, no, let's not talk about that. Look what he says. You meant evil against me. He calls it sin right to their face. You're right. You guys are serious losers. Amen. He gets right behind their confession. He doesn't hold it on them, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about 
as it is this day. To save many people alive. Look, the whole world, according to the Scripture, was saved from famine because of Egypt. But honestly, if we're focusing on what the Scriptures are focusing on right here, the family of God was saved, and thus the Messiah came to us. Without that family being saved, nobody gets saved. God had a plan. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you, and I love this, and your little ones. He shows where his heart is at. I love your kids. We're family. My nieces and nephews. How could I how could I ever have a hatred? And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's a great character in this man. What a wonderful thing to be seen. When he makes that statement, Am I God? You know, am I in the place of God? Romans twelve, nineteen through twenty one, we should all be familiar with. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. I personally believe, based upon my study, that that is the practice in the culture when a neighbor would come home and all of their fires have gone out. Their house is now cold. They can't cook. They can't see. And there the fire is kindled in their neighbor's house and they would take a heavy earthen jar and go over to their neighbor's house and say, can you give me some of your coals? And they would take that shovel pan and fill the jar full of hot coals and they carried the jars upon their head and walk home and pour the coals in the fire and kindle their own home and begin meal and preparation and warmth and light comes to that home. Why would God in one moment say, give a drink and food to your enemy and then burn him with fire? It doesn't make any sense, does it? That was the common practice, and I think it fits much more neatly into what God is saying about extend the warmth, the light, the illumination, the kindness to the one who doesn't deserve it. Why? Because that's how you're all sitting here today. Christ has extended it to all of us. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's the summary. There's the summary. However you want to interpret the rest of it, you got to make that fit in perfectly in the end. The way we're going to overcome people's wickedness aimed directly at us is with good. Being good right back at them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim, his son's children, to the third generation. The children of Micker, the son of Manasseh, also brought up on Joseph's knees. They were in his household, running around, driving him crazy. He was able to love his son's sons. 
Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying. But, here it is again, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then we read later that they took him with them when they departed from the land. Joseph and his fathers trusted God to fulfill his promise to give the people of Israel the land of Canaan. When you rewind Joseph's life, there's nothing but a long list of opportunities to doubt that. Amen? When he's heard these promises from his father and his father's father and his father's father's father, there's plenty of opportunity as he's just being abused in every circumstance to say, not going to happen. God's faithfulness is untrue. Or maybe just to say, fine, it's true for them, but it's not true for me. And that's not how he lived his life. We see that has affected his heart, right? He speaks to those who forgot him in prison. He speaks to his brothers of, no, you did evil to me. But God was in control. Countless times in my years as a Christian, I've received the answer to prayer on the same day I prayed it. Countless times. Not all of my prayers have been answered so quickly. There are prayers I've prayed almost every day of my Christian life. And they're unanswered yet. I still trust God for the answers. Our hope is in God. So we continue in prayer. And we wait for the answers. It's as simple as that. Don't let the time discourage you. Because the faithful God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is the God we worship. He answers our prayers. Amen? Stand and we'll pray. Father, you are so good to us. I pray that as we spend these brief moments together in fellowship, that you would knit us together as brothers and sisters even more. Lord, fill our hearts with your Spirit. Give us your vision for the future. Help us to be your witnesses. That we would share with the world around us the hope that is within us. Bless us, keep us, watch over us, protect us, provide for us until we're together again. I pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.